It's non-conference basketball tournament time in the early season, and I rode down to the Charleston Classic in South Carolina to watch eight solid teams play three games apiece in four days. Most of the NBA decision makers and scouts were here to watch such major division schools such as Purdue, Virginia Tech, and Alabama. However, so-called mid-major schools also have prospects to evaluate such as Davidson and Northeastern. In fact, both these schools pulled off the upsets with Northeastern over Alabama on the first day and are returned on Friday to watch Davidson topple Wichita State in the semifinals. Although my notebook was stolen off the scores table on day two, I was looking forward to my day off to meet up with Northeastern's senior point guard who led his team over the Crimson Tide with 20 points, five assists, and three steals. Oh yeah, it's all about the drive, baby. I rode downtown to the historic district off of Meeting Street at Northeastern's camping spot to meet up with Conference Player of the Year candidate Vasa Pusicha to grab some insight on how he began playing basketball and his long journey culminating to Northeastern's campus. I'm, I'm a big sports fan and just growing up in Serbia, I feel like um, Serbian people have a natural talent for sport, if you know, if that's a thing, to be honest. And uh, uh, just growing up, obviously soccer is the number one sport and I think everyone starts kind of with soccer is the early age. My first sport that I started playing was karate, or doing, it's not playing, but um, I, I was five, five at a time. And um, I only I only uh, practiced it for, I, I think it was less than a year. I got yellow belt and you know, that, that was it. After that I moved on to, I tried tennis for a little bit. It wasn't for me, obviously tried soccer. Whenever we had free time, you know, playing outside of France or in school, we would always play soccer. You know, basketball would always come second, you know, but soccer was always easy, you know, just need two goals and it's kind of a, it doesn't require a lot of money or anything to, you know, to play that sport really. And uh, um, I liked it, but I don't know. Then uh, I guess I tried basketball and I, you know, I kind of stick with it. Um, it just, I always, you know, enjoyed it from early age. I, I, I really loved it. It was, uh, it's not something that I was pushed for to, to, to do. Uh, you know, my parents never really forced me to do anything, uh, you know, sports-wise. So I just think I fell in love with the sport. And, you know, since I was, I believe, I believe I started 2002, which I, which when I was seven and, you know, still, still to this day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... Why basketball? Uh, I believe at the time where I started playing basketball was was 2002, and uh, that's where uh, that's when Serbia, uh, actually Yugoslavia at the time, but mm -hmm. you know it's the same same country, Serbia, um, won the world championships in uh, in uh, Indiana. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember everyone was talking about uh, about those games at the time. Everybody was staying late to watch, uh, you know, Vlade Divac, uh, Peja, and all of those guys and. You know, just beating the U.S. In, in the quarterfinals game. You know, everybody remembers those those days. So, I, I would say I, I don't really remember why I started playing, but that, that was definitely uh, you know what um, helped me pick basketball. I would say uh, world championship. That's where that's where I kind of started first hearing about basketball. Um, you know, ev everyone in, in Serbia was you know ecstatic about you know about it was a huge success. You know, especially after some you know tough times uh, in the late '90s and. So I think that kind of lifted the, the spirit of the country. Vasa has been in the States for over five years. The decision to leave his country could not have been an easy one. 
But there was an opportunity in front of him. When you turn 18 uh, in Serbia, if you're playing, you know, professional or playing high-level sports, you're, you know, either forced to make a decision to either pick sports or or, or go to school or and go to college. Um, I was, uh, you know, basketball was always my priority, um, and um, I, I wanted to play professionally. But at the time, I didn't really have offers, and my mom always wanted me to, you know, go to school and uh, finish and get a diploma. And she always kind of um, had that, uh, you know, was always kind of mentioning the, you know, what if you just try one year in the states, uh, you know, fourth year of high school, and, you know, after I, I didn't get any offers to sign a professional deal, then, uh, yeah. I, I thought the best best option was to you know come to the states and and go to fourth year of high school and then just just go from there you know college wasn't a um, priority or, or my, my goal at the time I just wanted to you know feel the feel it out the, the the whole vibe committing to an opportunity can be risky for the player to a certain degree not knowing the language the program and the environment. Coaches take on that risk sometimes without having much live exposure to evaluate international players. However, Northeastern's head coach, Bill Cohen, has a unique approach to international players. Well, you know, first I'll start off by saying I, I always admire um, the international student-athletes who come over and leave their home country, you know, to follow their hopes and dreams. Uh, you know, you got a, a lot of U.S. kids that, you know, they, they're afraid to go away from home or go a state away to go to school, but yet you have uh, somebody like Vasa who is willing to throw caution to the wind, uh, leave his family for, for a long period of time. Um, you know, he entered a prep school and went over here, get to a university, study in a different language, in a different culture without, you know, the comfort food that you grew up with and everything else. And really to, to, to follow a, a, a dream. And, uh, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for not only possible, but for, for all the internationals that come over and, and do that. And when you put it in perspective of a U.S. kid, if you, you know, they just want to stay close to home. You can sense the sincere drive that Vasa has, and I know that changes can be difficult, but he made a decision to leave his family, his city, his country, to go to America to play high school ball at Sunrise Christian in Kansas. Landing in the Midwest, Vasa began his first stop that would take him to the West Coast before eventually landing in Boston. It was it was different, but um, I just I, I was I was ready for it. I, I knew that I was coming into a place like that, and uh, the good thing was I had three uh, Serbian players on uh, on that team. So. Uh, the fourth one came uh, during the during the year, and he was my roommate. Actually, the the guy who I was playing with um, back home in Serbia. So he ended up going to Arizona. I went to San Diego, and I just think that uh, Dusan Ristic. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he like all those all those guys. Uh, Feel like we, so we, made, we helped it, each other. Made it yeah, made it way easier. Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. And not knowing like obviously my knowledge of English wasn't wasn't great at the time and. Um, just having those guys where I could always ask them something. Some of them were, were in the States for a couple of years, so I think that all really helped me transition back, uh, transition to the U.S. My favorite place in, uh, in the States, um, uh, 
I, it's, you know, I, I don't know if I have to speak about it. You know, I, I, everybody, everybody knows about San Diego. Yeah. But you're in a, you're in a great place. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, um, it, it was a perfect, perfect spot for me. I, I believed uh, both uh, academically, um, basketball-wise, and also being in a great city like that. Um, I think during my freshman year, I got a, you know, a lot of experience uh, playing behind a senior point guards, but I had. Uh, I still I still had a lot of playing time and I thought I was I was getting a lot better and that sophomore year was you know supposed was supposed to be my my breakout year and uh, really I was supposed to be the leader of that team but there were some changes uh, in between that year coaching changes coaching change. yeah that obviously didn't uh, work out as well work out well um, so yeah kind of you ended up. so then you decided to transfer yeah right? exactly uh, and you said I I want to go someplace really really cold yeah that's what you thought you said because i don't like san diego uh, um no so yeah. why did you honestly why? honestly uh, i was really looking forward uh, looking to come to the east coast uh believe it or not because uh, i know it does make a big difference to the people in the u.s but actually being closer to europe you know for what those six hours it actually helps um you know there's a six-hour time difference instead of nine hours. Um, the flights are, you know, way... Um, uh, it only have only have two flights instead of having three to San Diego. It only takes about 10 hours instead of 24, you know. So, like, all those things, I, I kind of wanted to come closer to the East Coast. And, you know, I was in the Midwest for a year. I was in San Diego on the West Coast for two years. And then why not experience the East Coast? Northeastern is known for the academics, uh, but my goal is to, you know, be a professional basketball player after I graduate. And uh, just looking at the former players that went through this program, especially uh, in the Coach Collins era, um, you know, uh, Matt, Matt Jennings, uh, uh, Davey Walker, Quincy Ford. I mean, even before JJ Barea, it was uh, known for a uh, place where they develop guards and, and they kind of prepare them for the, for the next level. Vasa is a proud Serbian who has had the benefit of playing for his country in the juniors. He is also very knowledgeable about basketball and the history of basketball. And one of his big goals is to play with some of his fellow NBA countrymen in the near future together. Now, you've had uh, some national experience playing yeah. for your yeah. country? Yeah, I played at uh, under 16 and under 18 European championships. Yeah. Um, we didn't end up doing so well, but... Um, it was a great experience, and uh, you know you get a lot better during those uh, two-month camps over the summer, where you really play with the best players in Serbia, and it, 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 and it means a lot. You know, uh, being a, being a national team, a basketball national team in Serbia, you know, speaks um, speaks something. Uh, you have a love of this country. You yeah, love yeah, but love yeah, I feel like every Serbian, you know, loves the country, and you know, just being so a small country, and it went through a lot, a lot of you know tough times, uh, even you know, in 50, 15 years ago, and before that, of course, uh, I think the Serbian people are really proud of uh, you know where they come from, and you know, I'm 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 the same way. My number one goal right now is just to you know get a um, to play for national team, for the play for national men's national team, because um, those guys are really good. You know, have, have five NBA players now. We've always had a lot of NBA players and a lot of Euroleague guys, and uh, it's really is a, you know, soccer is the number one sport in Serbia, but basketball is a sport that brought the most success. And I, I think that you know, just there's a lot of tall people in Serbia as well. So I just feel like basketball comes naturally to us. Obviously, winning the, the our regular season. Uh, 
but more importantly, winning the CAA tournament and making it to the, the NCAA um, tournament this year. You know, we were so close last year, and uh, yeah. it just uh, it just motivated me to you know push more this summer, work harder, and uh, you know hopefully March um, will be a different story than last year. Uh, He's a basketball historian. If you ask him about anybody that's played in the NBA, he's studied their game, uh, even old-time players. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's almost embarrassing sometimes when you ask some of our players, like, have you ever heard of Oscar Robertson or, you know, Will Chamberlain or something like that? Somebody said, you know, if it's not in the, uh, you know, the current era, you know, it's not KD or LeBron or something like that. They, they, they don't really have a, a, a historical basis, but Vasa does. The national team is one of Vasa's goals for the future, but he has pressing matters and immediate goals to take care of first. Speaking of short-term goals, um, right after the season, um, you know, depending on how the season finishes and the success that I have this year, Obviously, uh, if I if I get a chance to 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 work out with some NBA teams and uh, hopefully get an invitation to summer league, that'll be great. And then from there, you never know what happens. You know, I could have a great summer league, and uh, some teams may like me, or uh, I may get some opportunities back in Europe, which I also think is great for me. And I, I honestly uh, feel like European game fits me better. Uh, fits me better. It's definitely harder to make the league, but uh, I just feel like uh, being from there and. Uh, uh, being from Europe just gives me a little advantage over, over you know, American guys playing in Europe. And there's still a lot of good teams over there, good level basketball. Vasa is a heady point guard who was runner-up for Conference Player of the Year last season. I asked both Vasa and head coach Bill Cohen what they thought his strengths and concerns were. He's very, very competitive. If you put time and score on a clock, whether it's a shooting drill or, a, you know, a competitive drill in practice, I mean, he wants to win. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, just another example of his passion. Um, secondly, I think you can speak about his vision. Um, he sees the game. Um, oh, a couple he, plays ahead. A couple of plays yeah, ahead. Like a hockey, hockey player. In yeah, and, and he, can, he can make all the passes, so he knows where, where all, the, um, all his teammates are. And, and, um, and then, then I think lastly, I think he's, he's got an elite feel for the game. A lot of guys are either physically gifted <laughs> or, uh, you, you, you know, highly skilled, um, but they don't, they don't have an innate feel for the game. And, and he does. He really does. He, he understands the flow of the game. He understands um, personalities, and he understands spacing and movements. And so it allows him... Um, to be the player he is because, in all honesty, he's not as physically talented. He's not an above-the-rim guy. He's not a jet with the ball. Um, it's his basketball IQ that that separates him. And he plays well within himself. I think that's important. No too. question. Yeah, not not only just end-of-game clock or end-of-half clock, uh, end-of-possession clock. You know, a lot of guys, you know, don't have a sense of how much time is left or what you have to get into. But he's he's probably made more... Uh, shot clock, buzzer beaters. Um, you know, for us, we're a pretty patient team, and you know, we're not an all-out transition team. So, quite often, we get deep into the clock. And but when you have a guy like Vasa, I mean, it's it's such a luxury because he does have a sense of time and score, and, and he's got an internal clock that's pretty unique. 
And I think I like to say his teammates can can borrow his confidence uh, a lot of times. You know, when we're in the thick of things, he's never really uh, sped up or intimidated by the moment. And I think that has a calming effect on his teammates, um, and they can borrow that a little bit, and then you know they can perform a little bit better. But uh, he's got uh, he. he he certainly has the respect of all his teammates, and I think that goes a long way in leadership. I, I don't want to make it the NBA or your league. It's, it's, that's my, my, my long-term goal, I'd say. You'll, um, I think, interview well with, player, uh, with uh, teams, whether those be NBA, uh, G League, European, or whatever, and those opportunities will come. And just can, as you do, continue on your path. I know you got a game tomorrow. Yeah. Um, good luck with that Thank and, you. and the rest of the year. And I appreciate you spending time with me. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, giving this interview with me. And, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully we get a win tomorrow. You go get yeah. it. All yeah. right, good luck. Yeah, thank you. Vasa Pusicha has a bright future in professional basketball after school. Like many other international players, he has taken a longer path. But his road has always been focused on winning. There have been a few bumps along the way and... Just after we talked, he was diagnosed with a small fracture in his left wrist and will be out of action for four to six weeks. However, come January, he'll be back in action at the beginning of conference play to lead the Huskies, hopefully, to the CAA championships. So, get well soon, Vasa. Oh yeah, it's all about the drive, baby. Sitting in a hotel room is not my thing, especially when you have a day off and you're planted in America's number one small city in America, voted number one for the past six years and counting. So leaving Meeting Street, I decided to take a quick detour to roll past the historic Charleston City Market and the Waterfront Park before turning south towards Folly Beach to head towards West Ashley for brunch at Charleston's oldest standing bar, Jeans Hofbrow, where I'm going to meet up later with Charleston's own poet laureate, Marcus Amaker. All right, well, it's lunchtime here at Jeans Hofbrow. Jason Stalker, the co-owner of uh, Jeans, is sitting down here with uh, myself and Marcus Amaker, poet laureate, and um, everything else here in Charleston. Um, <laughs> So, both of y'all moved from a different place to come to Charleston. Charleston is not uncovered. It's a great city. Um, Marcus, you moved here to work as a graphic designer at the Post and Courier, and you got your degree in journalism. What attracted you to Charleston? What has made you stay? I mean, this is really a question for both of y'all. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, at the time, I was attracted to the grittiness and the dirtiness of Charleston um, downtown. That's why I like this bar. <laughs> it's not that dirty. Yeah, right on. Grit, there's a grit to it. Yeah, yeah. And downtown at that time when I moved here, there was a um, definitely sort of an underground Asheville type of feel to it. So that was a really big um, important thing for me, as well as I just felt like city was um, malleable at that time. You could really make a dent in the community artistically um so yeah it, it, it felt it was a very it still is a, it was a very exciting time though when i first moved here same for me as well about 
for a city as old as Charleston is, the amount of growth in the past 20 years has been mind-blowing to me. Um, when I first moved here, you really there, there weren't any businesses still thriving on Upper King Street, above Calhoun, and you you could get into one of those buildings for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. They're two million dollar properties now. Jeans Hofbrau is located in the Avondale neighborhood of West Ashley, which is located just a few miles away from the Citadel. The bar has been in existence since the early 50s. Co-owner Jason Stalker bought the bar a few decades ago when at the time the bar was a private key club that only members gained entryway. The building is over 80 years old, but it wasn't first built as a bar. Walking through the doors of jeans, you have to pause a second or so, just get your eyes adjusted to the dim lighting. And the first thing you notice is the length of the wood bar, which had to be extended when Stalker bought it. Or, hey, it's time to get the hell out of here. Okay. And the little button was uh, to you know, release the latch on the front door back when it was a key club. Really? And maybe if somebody had forgotten their key or you could see somebody through the door. So that was, but this was a little, seemed almost like a little secret. That, that would be something that would be uh, intriguing. Maybe it was, it, I think there was a stigma about jeans before we took it over just because of that who knows what's going on inside the key club. You know, there's just something mysterious about it. And I think some people were afraid because we got a lot of when we opened up in 2000 and we weren't a private club anymore. Well, a lot of people were like, so this is what Gene's Hofbrau looks like inside. You know, always wondered. I was never a member, but wow, this is, uh, this is great. When we first took the place over, it had a very small bar up front. It was also a key club, so you had to be a member and you had your own key to open the front door. And that's so the only way you can get in? That's the only way you can get in. I mean, that's key cool. clubs kind of a, have gone by the wayside now. But the, the bar was very small, so one of the first things we wanted to do was elongate the bar. Because you know, me and my partners love bars. So when you open the front door of a bar, and we're kind of proud to be a little divey. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not too spick and span. But when you open the front door, you want to look at the bar. That's what you need to see. So we made the bar a little bit longer. And the front of the building, you're talking about the glass block we have up there, kind of had that old funky 70s wood paneling that might be in your oh, father's yeah. basement we bar. Had, we had that. Every, no, we had that in the living room. Uh, <laughs> but we, uh, we wanted to get a little bit more light in here and started tearing down this uh, bad wood paneling and found all this absolutely gorgeous glass block. I have been traveling to Charleston since I was a little kid, and I've seen this small city grow and change physically and socially. Albert Einstein once said, nothing happens unless something is moved. So I wanted to know from Stalker and Amaker what they thought the positive and negative changes on this growth movement in the city. Yeah, so um, I've seen a lot of positive change as far as um, awareness of um, the issues of artists in, in particular, and this is me being in conversations with um, the city of Charleston and things like that, I think that there's a lot more resources going toward artists, um, but there's definitely a struggle as well. Um, negatively, I think it's that the fact that a lot of people can't afford to live 
downtown or live where they work, you know, like wherever they work. It's amazing in a very short amount of time, maybe, we're talking maybe 12, 15 years, the amount of development that's happened in a city that's as old as it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really come back around. Can you afford to live in this city? I mean, is, are, um, are it, we... If you got here 30 years ago like I did, you can. <laughs> 15 years ago through the, the fall and the late it's, 2000, no? It exponentially gets more and more expensive not cost of living, but to if you want to purchase a place to live and make a make a a home here, it's difficult. Comparatively, is it uh, are you able to get into the city quickly as opposed to other major cities if you're living outside or not? Uh, well, they've gone. They've taken the right steps to help ease traffic in some sense. There are well the fight to finish 526 has been going on practically since I got here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do wish that there was more accommodation for 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 cyclists around yeah. town. Um, there needs to be a bike lane on the West Ashley Bridge and on the bridge to get here. I bike here a lot and it's like a risk, risk your life every time you're on that bridge. What about the people here? Do we... As you look at Charleston, an opening, kind of welcoming city, like, and this is the reason uh, I'm thinking this. Like, I love Charleston because everybody's friendly. You know, I grew up. I grew up in the South. Is that the way it is now? Do you see? I feel like it is because I, a lot of the people that I know and have met here in Charleston came from similar Southern city backgrounds. We've got our fair share of Northerners that come down, and I think they're, uh, I think they kind of laugh at our Southern hospitality. Maybe they don't get it 100%. Um, I'm certainly happy to dish it out by the shovel. <laughs> well, I think the answer to that depends on who you ask. Um, if you talk to our gay community and our transgender community, they probably would say no, um, because I've seen um, them get vandalized and beaten up and things like that have happened to um, people, a lot of people in the city. So that's happened. Um, but, but I think that, you know, I've wit wit witnessed that Southern hospitality and I think people are, you know, very nice, but I've definitely seen another side of that too. In 2016, Mayor Tecklenburg established the position of Poet Laureate to encourage the appreciation of poetry throughout Charleston. He also stated that Marcus is a well-known artist in our community who has the drive, passion, and talent to make poetry accessible to everyone. But there is a responsibility with that as well. And in conjunction with the Office of Cultural Affairs, there was an implementation of a community outreach and education program to encourage the writing, reading, and performance of poetry within the city. When the title came to me, um, it just sort of amplified what I was already doing. You were already doing that? Yeah, yeah. so um, what's great about it is that now I'm in schools, probably, I average probably once a week. Um, I'm at a different school and it's, um, elementary school to to yeah to colleges you know doing workshops 
um, you know, one-on-one mentorships, just being in cl- classrooms, being in front of um, students that need to see, you know, um, the manifestation of being an artist and what that can be. So I'm always sort of um, preaching the fact that you can be a full-time artist and make a living. He has infused himself in the city, and as a result, Charleston has infused themselves in Amica. His latest work is an album and book titled Empath, which is eligible for nomination for this year's Grammy Awards. I guess by the time this comes out, I'll find out if um, my album has a Grammy nomination. We're really close to getting a Grammy nomination um, under the spoken word category. Yeah, which is really amazing wow. to think about. Yeah, we. Um, so I did the album with Quentin Baxter, who's a local jazz musician and a and a producer, and he's toured with Freddie Cole, who's Nat King Cole's brother. Like he's done a lot. So Quentin um, is a member of the Recording Academy, and has an end with that stuff. And he already has two nominations. So when we did this album yeah, together, yeah, yeah, when we did this album together. I knew that that energy would be coming our way, and yeah, we're in a couple weeks. We'll find out. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so that's that's cool, and I already know that we're in the running. So congratulations. To get Amaker is not just a poet. He's a musician who has combined jazz with the spoken word, but he has also made many electronic or EDM albums. One of his most celebrated projects is a contemporary album titled Telemach which is about slavery and the life of Denmark Vesey, which gave a musical voice to Vesey's struggles and to the depression that arises from America's dark history. He actually took authentic audio from the National Archives and blended them into his songs. Was that in Charlotte that you were a slave? Hmm? Was that in Charlotte or Charlottesville? That is in Charlotte. In the back corner of jeans is what I would call a bar's activity area where there's an old school tabletop shuffleboard, steel tip darts, pinball machines, and a set of the only coin operated pool tables in the Avondale neighborhood. There are no live bands playing here, there are televisions, booze, over 250 different labels of beer and really good food. One of our signature burgers named after the neighborhood, it's called the Avondale Burger. Nice big half pound patty. It's got a fried green tomato on it, homemade pimento cheese, a couple slices of bacon. Very good. Or you could peruse our entree section, which is one. That's it. One entree, I love it. It says our our entree and it's a Jean's Wiener Schnitzel. I am drawn to jeans for the grittiness. But why do people of Charleston come here? Some of the places around here that have live music, when the bands kick up, people that don't want it, hey, let's go over to Jeans and grab a bite to eat. Yeah. You know? Some people are often surprised about, they like the feel of the bar, and they go to the bar for the bar, and then realize that we've got really, really good food. You gotta be passionate about it, you gotta love it. I love it. I love bars. I finished up Saturday night at a charity event hosted by Ducks Unlimited on the USS Yorktown aircraft carrier in Patriots Point in Mount Pleasant. 
It was a beautiful night for the oyster roast, shucking on the flight deck overlooking the Charleston Harbor. It was a good experience, but I still had one more day of basketball and four more games. The final day of the Charleston Classic was capped off by Virginia Tech beating Purdue in the final with three of the Hokie players scoring over 23 points apiece. Overall, Charleston was a success in and away from the TD Arena. Intel had been gathered, prospects noted, stories and injury reports sent. What's next for me? A few more tournaments before we head into conference play. Planning the monthly schedule will change as new prospects surface, not only for us underclassmen that must be seen, but seniors who will be invited to our college senior-only Portsmouth Invitational in April. So check back here on thedriveryanblake.com for more on The Drive on the Road with Ryan Blake. Oh yeah, it's all about the drive, baby.